This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Whistler Blackcomb, leaders in delivering adventure. So I climbed back up, got to the place that I'd hesitated before and just talked myself out of the fear. So to do that, one of the things that, that I know from being a psychologist is that it is actually impossible to be mentally calm and physically anxious at the same time, or physically calm and mentally anxious at the same time. This is Delivering Adventure. Welcome to the podcast that explores what it really takes to share adventure like a pro with your friends, your family, and as a profession. My name is Chris Capio, and I'm coming to you from Whistler, British Columbia. And I'm Jordy Shepard, recording from Canmore, Alberta. After a lifetime of working extensively in different parts of the adventure guiding industry, Chris and I have teamed up to launch this podcast. In each episode, you will hear top adventure guides, managers, marketers, and athletes share their best stories, advice, and trade secrets. The goal of this podcast is to share how you can take yourself and others farther from the mountains to the office and beyond. In this episode, we talk with Jeff Powder. Jeff is a climber, writer, and psychologist who lives in Canmore, Alberta. He's written about, thought about, and lived the climbing life for nearly 50 years and served as the editor of the Canadian Alpine Journal for 13 years. Jeff's most recent book, Inner Ranges, an anthology of mountain thoughts and mountain people, won the Climbing Literature Award at the Banff Mountain and Book Festival in 2019, was shortlisted for the Boardman Tasker Award, and won the National Outdoor Book Award in the U.S. Jeff was a recipient of the 2012 Summit of Excellent Award for Lifetime Contribution to Canada's Mountain Community. Today, Jeff will be sharing with us how we can better manage fear in ourselves and others in the face of adversity. Let's bring Jeff into the DA studio. Hello, Jeff. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. Let me ask you something. What, what does delivering adventure mean to you? So it's, it's a great question. I, I think two things really jump to my mind. One of them is, and this is coming from the perspective of, of being a writer who tries to communicate the adventure world to others. The two things are sharing passion, why we do what we do, how important it is to us, how it fulfills our life. And then another part that I've taken on, this is particularly um, some editorial work that I've done, is sharing reality. I, I think it's it's really easy to overplay the adventure hand, to exaggerate it, to talk about it in unrealistic kinds of ways. And I think it's critically important that we try and communicate the right way of doing adventure, the safe way of doing adventure, the human side of doing adventure so that it's not all golden hero stories. It's actually, these things are hard to do. It takes a lot of commitment. It takes a lot of training. It takes a lot of effort. And I, I think those two things of, of both sharing the passion, but also sharing the realities, some of which are pretty hard, are critically important for me. So when you, I'm going to circle back to what you just said about the communicating, you know, adventure, you're, you're a writer, you're a speaker. How do you think that we can do that well? And, and what, what does that mean to you when it comes to delivering adventure? Well, a lot of it comes simply through telling stories, simply just communicating what it is that you've done, but also communicating the why. I, I think the why is the more 
important piece in, in telling these stories. It's, it's hard for some people to understand why people take the chances that they do. Hard for people to understand how to do that in the best way possible, the right way. And I think that when we have the opportunity to tell these stories, to, to tell the human side of it more than anything else is, is critically important. It's not just about the objectives, it's about what happens inside of us when we step into those objectives. And that, that's what I've always been most interested in, right from the very beginning of reading about adventure and, and starting to do it myself. But I think it's, it's part that's harder to communicate. So often we tend not to communicate that side of things or not communicate it very well. How did you choose to pursue adventure as a, as a career? Well, I think I, I came into both my career and adventure at a really interesting time um, in that there wasn't a lot of discussion around in the world of psychology um, about adventure, about risk-taking, about why people do these challenging things. Um, and in fact, when I first started reading, because I was interested in adventure because I was doing it myself, um, and I first started reading the literature in psychology around adventure, it was very, very critical, if not even pathologizing adventure, saying that people who did these things had something wrong with them, as opposed to something right with them. And my personal experience, um, both from the way that adventure impacted my life, but also what I saw it doing for other people's lives, said that adventure was in fact this enormously positive force, as was risk-taking. So when I um, started practicing as a psychologist, um, I was actually working in a, a wilderness program for um, adolescents who'd been in trouble. And I really saw the power that adventure had for them in terms of transforming their lives. And then when I started writing about adventure and I, I saw that there was an appetite for the why of adventure, for the psychology of adventure, everything just started to roll for me. It was, uh, you know, I, in a sense, I was kind of a big fish in a little pond at that point because there weren't a lot of people writing about this. So it, it was easy to do that. Um, and people responded really well. They, everybody seemed to be quite interested in that, including later in my practice, when I started working with corporate groups, I found that there was a real appetite for business leaders to, to hear about adventure as well. And that's been a, a big part of what I do is to, to go to business groups and talk about risk-taking in a very different way. What is an adventure that you've had that's really worked to shape the person that you are today? So there's a couple that come to mind for me. Both of these were uh, Himalayan trips that I was involved in um, very early in the, the uh, process of me going on to bigger peaks. Um, and they had very different kinds of influences over me. The first one was a trip that I made to one of the most beautiful, spectacular mountains in the world called Emma de Blam. Uh, it's quite interesting now. It's a it's quite a commercialized mountain. It's um, it's not that high. It's just a shade under twenty three thousand feet. But at that time that that uh, we went as a group of Canadians, it had only been climbed I think six or seven times at that point. So it was a very different era. And one of the unique things about going to um, any of the mountains over there, yeah, this was in 1988, is that you would essentially have the mountain to yourself. Um, there were commercial guiding happening on peaks like that. Um, permits were issued simply as uh, one team per mountain or one team per side of a mountain at that point. So I went and had this opportunity to go with a small group of people to an amazing mountain. And for the first 
three quarters of that trip, it we had the most immaculate, perfect conditions that you can imagine. Warm enough to climb in, in t-shirts even above 21,000 feet. Fantastic condition on the rock so you could actually be climbing in rock shoes on a, on a big mountain. Um, dry as a bone so the, the uh, conditions were perfect for moving fast. And I felt like I'd been dreaming about going to a peak like this since I was a young kid. And then suddenly I was on this thing and it was this incredibly perfect trip. And then an accident happened and someone was killed and the trip changed on a dime. So I think that the thing that happened on that trip with that accident that, that I was quite closely in, involved with was for me kind of a loss of innocence. And that's, that was a pretty important shift for me in terms of adventure to, to not feel like it's just all beautiful sunshine and, and um, fantastic relationships on a, on a mountain that there actually is terrible tragedy and terrible consequence for some of the things that we do. So that, that became part of, of the adventure story for me. And then another part that was, was really interesting, it took me a while to go back to the Himalaya again, because that was a pretty difficult experience to live through the death of a friend. When I went back four years later, I went back onto one of the 8,000 meter peaks called Manaslu. And what was really interesting then is the Himalayan world had changed quite a bit in those four years. So this was the first time that Manaslu had ever been guided. Um, so there was a guided party on the peak. There was uh, other parties as well. There was a, a Korean expedition that had, I think, 17 climbers and a, a whole bunch of um, high altitude support people. And then we were a, a small group of Canadians. And what that trip taught me was that I really didn't want to be part of large scale trips like that. I, I really found it unpleasant to be around this massive group of people with conga lines of climbers going up fixed ropes and, and things like that, even though what we experienced in 1992 was nothing um, compared to what can happen on some of the big peaks now. It still wasn't what I wanted to be doing. So what that shaped for me was I never went back there again and I went back several times, but I never went back there again with a large group of people. It was always just with one or two other people. And that was, um, that was really foundational for me to realize more what I wanted to be doing. And, and that changed things as well, because if you're going with smaller people, a smaller group of people, chances are you're going to be going to smaller peaks. And that's what I did for the, the rest of the trips that I made over there. How has your training as a psychologist helped you in your adventures? Can you give us an example of that? Well, that, that's an interesting question, Jordi. I get asked that quite a bit. And I, I think the, um, the first answer I'll give you is that it's a bit of a chicken and an egg thing. I think the reason that I became a psychologist was because I have a natural curiosity about people. I have a natural interest in why people think the way that they do and why they do the things that they do. And I think that curiosity has shaped me more than the, the psychological training that I actually did. Having said that, I think there are some things about the training that help me understand people um, and work with people in perhaps a different way. One of them is the incredible power that conversation has. So when I think about adventures that I've been on, you know, these are often times where uh, people are pushed to the max, where there can be conflicts that happen, where it can be easy to, to slip into some of your worst behaviors as opposed to your best behaviors. And in my experience, conversation is the cure for that. 
we can talk these things through. We can just by by diving into the the how and why of things, we can understand each other better, and we can make some changes. Not everybody is that ready to have conversation. Not everybody's that capable of having conversations. But I think if you can have somebody, and I, I think I'd put myself in this category, who can facilitate those conversations happening, even in an adventure setting, that's a really positive um, thing to bring into those, those situations. The other thing that um, is definitely uh, part of my understanding of adventure from a psychological perspective is understanding the psychology of fear. I think that there are some basic things that that uh, we as psychologists have come to understand about the role of fear, about the place of fear, that allows us to to work with that fear in a different way than perhaps some other people have. And I've always been been fascinated by that. How about uh, how psychology affects the group decision making and and leadership? You know, even in a in a, a recreational setting, you know, like a non guided setting, but also in a guided setting, there's you know, there's often there should be a leader of some some description, but it's also often um, group decision making that's that's uh, happening, and there's there's a lot of psychology I think behind that. Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. I I think um, you know we're really evolving our understanding of the way that we think differently as groups of people rather than as individuals, and I think the more that we can. Um, as leaders um, in the outdoors, the more that we can understand how those group think kind of influences are actually affecting decisions on the ground, the, the more we're able to do something uh, to change, particularly in the direction of greater safety, uh, greater awareness of, of the risk that we're, we're undertaking. It's become a really fascinating area of psychology that, that really wasn't understood at all when I first started practicing. And I, I think, again, it's evolved in in really, really positive kinds of ways. And I've certainly seen um, in my own experiences, particularly on bigger trips, the way that leadership um, either plays well or, or plays poorly. And, and that includes you know, something as, as basic as understanding whether the, a person best leads from the front or leads from behind. And, and I've seen every variety of leadership on the different experiences that, that I've been on. And I've also seen how leadership has evolved over the course of time so that, um, you know, I come from a generation of climbers where we were still typically seeing a more authoritarian, a more directive um, kind of leader. And we've moved increasingly more to a more democratic style of leadership in the outdoors. And when it comes to things like uh, collective decision making and risk taking, I think that democracy is is one of the most powerful forces we have, as long as we understand how it works again. I do find uh, we're embracing that more in the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides and and really finding uh, the importance of of guest client client input uh, on trips um, because we're all in that together, whatever we're doing that, that activity and everybody has eyes and ears and experiences. And, and then there's also the, we may, might not get too, too far into it, uh, down the rabbit hole of intuition, but there's all, also that piece that sort of comes into play as well to, to do with, uh, risk and fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, I think that democratization of the experience has been a, a really, really positive thing. And, and again, as, as to your point about intuition, as long as we understand 
how intuition works and where it's coming from and we embrace it when it serves a purpose and we help people through it if it doesn't serve a purpose or if it isn't serving a purpose i think that can be enormously constructive and at the very least it's incredibly interesting to watch how people make decisions like this under these kind of conditions absolutely so with risk uh, taking being a large component of any adventure and and uh, risk mitigation and um, awareness of risk uh, why do you think people still need to take risks in our current society? Well, I truly think it is the way that we grow. Um, it's the way that we understand our boundaries. It's the way that we understand what we're capable of and not capable of. But, but I also think it's important to understand that from a psychological and an evolutionary perspective, that not everybody does take risks or is interested in taking risks. And not everybody profits from it in the same kind of way. And I think that um, those of us who have done more kinds of things in the outdoors, it's it's pretty easy to believe that um, a it's it's fundamentally important for people to take risks, um, but not everybody actually agrees with that. Um, that it actually is a a pleasant and rewarding experience to step through risk into success. Not everybody experiences the world that way. And I think particularly as professionals working with others in the outdoors, um, we have to wrap our heads around that idea in that the thing that we think might be good for somebody else isn't necessarily what's going to be good for somebody else. And I think we have to be willing to, to pull back our expectation or, or even more so our tendency to push others um, into risk-taking situations. Yeah, it's quite a perception-driven perspective. So when we think about supporting people in taking risks in the outdoors, providing that we have their explicit permission to, to take those risks, I think it's important to think about some critically important um, elements of, of what it takes for risk taking to actually work. So I've got a bit of a model I can share with you. Um, I call it the, the basics model. It's, um, it's just an acronym for six components that are, are critically important here. The first one is belief. Belief that I can actually do this. And it's, it's surprising how underestimated that is sometimes that when you're asking somebody to do something, if they truly don't think that they can do it, you're gonna be pushing them over an edge, sometimes even literally, that is, is only gonna be unpleasant for them. So the first step you often have to take is just encourage them to actually have some kind of faith that they can do this. Um, the, the second component, the A, is action. We can't underestimate how critically important it is for people to actually step into an experience before we ask them to evaluate it. I think it's really easy to spend too much time, particularly as a, a less experienced guide or facilitator of experiences, to, um, to overtalk it, to rather than getting people off the ground, on a ledge, on a pair of skis, that we try and talk it through. And, and oftentimes with people who are risk averse, that's one of the, the less good things that you can do, actually. The third part is uh, support. What do you need to be doing to address the person at their level, to help them see that this is um, really something that they can do, that they want to do, that they're engaged in doing, 
but you have to talk to them from their point of view. And as experienced outdoor professionals, it's really easy to um, forget what it was like when we started, to forget what it was like to actually feel fear. Because oftentimes when we go into these situations now, we can be incredibly casual in a very, very challenging, very difficult situation. And it, it doesn't translate very well to the experience of our clients or our, of our guests. Um, a fourth one is critically important in this, and it's really easy to, to misunderstand this um, as professionals going in to help others, and that's the idea of intention. It's really important to understand that in order for people to bother taking risks, they have to see the point in taking that risk. It's not just the belief part that they believe they can, but they actually want to do this, that it matters to them to do this. And we grossly underestimate sometimes that when we ask people to do things that they may not have any kind of, of interest or understanding how it's going to be valuable for them or understand how it may even be transformative for them, we just believe that implicitly ourselves and don't necessarily share that all that well. And then the last two components um, go together hand in hand, knowledge and skills. I think it's the thing that as mountain guides, we can help people with more than anything else. Um, tell them how things work, explain the gear, explain the systems, explain the physics of things, and give them the tools so that they can actually engage directly, personally themselves, and see progress in how they grow. And that's one of the things that I think has been a, a very big change in the guiding community is we're far more likely these days to actually give people a whole lot of skills that they can develop themselves rather than take them out and have them be simply passive recipients of the, of the experience. So all of those things, the belief, action, support, intention, knowledge, and skills, I think are, are critical elements to getting people to understand how they can um, profit from a risk experience. Because again, not everybody knows that they're going to profit from this. What role do you think fear has when it comes to taking risks? Well, I think it's, it's a foundational role. It, um, it can serve a very, very useful purpose. I, I think um, we are very foolish if we don't pay attention to the, um, the fear that, that we experience. But I think what we learn how to do um, as good adventurers, good leaders, um, good people who deliver these stories to others is to develop a more nuanced understanding or nuanced experience of fear than we might have the first time that we enter into something. Fear has a, an evolutionary value. It's, it's there to keep us alive. But the thing is, we we're in a very different place than uh, we were when we first came onto the planet. We, we have developed all kinds of things around us that keep us safe in a way that the, the people who um, preceded us in the world just simply didn't have. In the past, it made a whole lot of sense that you would have a very, very strong reaction to fearful stimuli. So that if you hear a snap of a twig in the dark woods behind you, you either turn around and fight or you run away. And you really didn't need to have a much more nuanced kind of distinction between um, the, the things that you feared. Now we fear things like talking on a podcast or we fear things like asking somebody out on a date or we fear things um, like 
eating the wrong kind of food. And, and those, that's very, very different from what we're hardwired still um, to experience. So there's really, from a psychological perspective, there's really only four states of being that are critically important to understand and are actually wired into our chemistry. You are either calm or you are slightly stimulated or you are agitated and then fully fearful. Each of those different states has different uh, neurochemicals, neurohormones attached to it. And the problem lies in if you cannot distinguish accurately or adequately those four states. So if you experience slight stimulation as fear, you're going to stop doing something that you actually should be able to do. If you cannot distinguish the difference between stimulation and agitation, you're going to stop yourself from doing something that would actually really serve you to be able to do. The people that have the hardest time can barely distinguish the difference between calm and stimulation, let alone stimulation and, and full-on fear, so they don't enter into to doing anything at all in, in the most pathological clinical cases. But I, I think that um, one of the things that as, as leaders who are delivering adventure can do is to help people learn how to make those distinctions. So that when that person gets off the ground and, and starts going up a climb and they start experiencing something, to help them learn through practice, through conversation, through engagement with the activity, developing some skills, that what they're experiencing is actually just a, a, a slight elevation of their heart rate, a slight change in the way that they're breathing, and then they can actually use that as um, a sign, a signal for them to be able to do something a little bit different. Not stop doing the activity, but do something a bit different. Regain your balance, get your foot position different. Turn differently on the ski slope so that you don't fall down. But if you believe that as soon as you experience those feelings, you have to come down, you have to be off the rope, you have to, you have to stop doing the activity, it's going to be really different, A, to progress, and B, to actually bother going back and trying it again. So we learn how to do that, making those distinctions. And that's, that's hugely important in life because it allows us to eventually be able to talk in a podcast or ask somebody out on a date or all of those things that I mentioned before. But that's, that's not always an easy route for, for people to get through. And I think it's, it's critically important as we lead people in the outdoors, that we can make the distinction between those states and help the person see that they're, they're actually not in peril right now because there isn't a saber-toothed tiger behind them. In fact, there never is. But rather what they're experiencing is just a positive, um, a positive trigger to, to make a change. Yeah, I think a lot of that can be worked through with a, a good progression uh, as guides and instructors. And rather than just parachuting people into the being on the, the high ledge mm -hmm. uh, kind of thing that we are quite comfortable with and, and work with within that environment all the time. We've got to remember that we have progressed to that point and they have not. And so you kind of got to start with, uh, with those baby steps and, uh, and work up to it. And before you, before people know it, they're, they're where they never thought they could possibly be mm -hmm. and are generally, you know, maybe aware of things like heights and, and crevasses below them and all that kind of stuff, but not fearful of it. Yeah, I, you know, I always think that 
I don't think you'd actually be able to test this theory, but I always think it'd be interesting to take any of us who have actually had years of experience in the outdoors even. And if we could somehow um, take that person with them being unaware, maybe they're asleep or um, maybe we've knocked them out with some kind of drug and we, um, we stick them on a ledge 3000 feet off the ground up on El Cap and then that's where they wake up, they're gonna have a response <laughs> no matter how much experience they have, they're gonna be pretty surprised by that and they're gonna experience something deep down in the pit of their stomach around that. And that doesn't matter how much experience you have, it really is about you know, the, the immediate response that people have in those kind of situations. Yeah, I'd say uh, when I when I climbed the shield route on El Cap over five days there, I, I woke up on the portal ledge pretty much every morning with a bit of a, where am I and what is going on? Heightened awareness. Yep. For sure. <laughs> despite, despite having experience. <laughs> Okay, and I think you've you've kind of explained it fairly well um, how we can use fear to our advantage. But do you have anything uh, anything else to add on that? Well, you know, one of the things that um, that I think maybe distinguishes some people from others in the population is um, whether people enjoy fear, and I, I'm I'm often curious about that because I I think there's certainly a lot of people I know in the outdoors that will will take all kinds of um, chances, put themselves in situations that are, um, you know, transparently um, fear inducing, like, you know, jumping out of an airplane or going down a, a serious whitewater river. And they actually really enjoy that. So I, I, I've often wondered whether, you know, we can actually, contradicting a bit of what I said a minute ago, um, we can teach people to enjoy fear a little bit more than, than they actually uh, maybe innately do. And I, I think that's something that we've all come to at, at some point that, you know, something that really frightened us at the beginning, that first really big, big bit of exposure that you have, or the first pendulum swing that you did, or something like that, or even the first fall that you had, that we learn how that's something that doesn't have catastrophic consequences. And in fact, um, we can actually enjoy the the rush of. But this brings up the point that there's a real big difference between risk-taking and thrill-seeking. Most of the people that I know that um, have, have grown and have become exceptional practitioners have really shown that what they're about is mitigating risk and taking charge of it and, and making sure that they do the right kinds of things rather than diving into um, any uncontrollable risk. And in fact, a, a number of the people that I know that are are leaders in the outdoor world, they, they're actually um, uncontrolled risk averse. They, they really don't want to have that, that kind of situation because it feels almost stupid to them. Whereas there are definitely some people who just, they, they love the experience of the, the rush and the buzz of, of things. But again, I don't think that um, those are the people who typically go on and, and become high level practitioners because that will go away. That, that thrill and the buzz does go away after a time. Can you think of a situation where you had a hard time controlling your fear? Yeah, I can. I can tell you one story about that, and it. it I I often use this when I'm um, talking to um, clients of mine about about risk taking. So one of the things that um, I have done over the years, um, just because I think it's it's probably the most clarifying, the most purposeful, the um, the purest version of the climbing game is the solo climbing without a rope. Um, without a partner. And um, 
I had this experience where typically when I do this, I, I really want to make sure that um, I don't leave the ground unless I know that I'm fully prepared. I'm, I, I'm feeling completely in control myself. I'm going for all the right reasons. It's a, you know, a positive thing to be doing it rather than um, some kind of negative thing. And I, I had this experience where I went to go and do a route on my own um, up on a, a peak right above my home in Canmore called Mount Rundle. And there was a, a, a long um, climb of several rope lengths called Raptor. And on that climb, the, um, the hardest part of the route, the crux, is on the second pitch. And it's a notoriously slippery and thin move. And um, I, I left the ground knowing that that's, that's always the challenge of the route. It's always something that that um, can catch you off guard a little bit, uh, very much dependent on how warm or cold the rock is and so on as to how slippery it's gonna be. And I got up there and even though I've done this thing you know, a dozen times before that, I got up there and I started making the move and I couldn't do it. And then I backed down a little bit and then I went back and tried it again and I couldn't do it and backed down and went and tried it again. And then finally decided this just wasn't gonna be my day. So I down climbed back down to the ground again and, as I sat there, I, I really took a look at what was happening with me and the, the risk in that moment. And it was, it was interesting to puzzle through because I knew that I could do this. I'd done it before and I'd done it before on my own. Um, it, it hadn't been a big deal to do it before. I didn't know what I was supposed to learn from the moment of the day. Was my hesitation real? Was it telling me something? Was it something that I should absolutely pay attention to? And I think most of the time I would feel something like that and say, you know what, I'm not going to go back up there again. But that day I decided, no, I, I can do this. And I think for some reason it was important to, um, to have that awareness. So I climbed back up, got to the place that I'd hesitated before and just talked myself out of the fear. So to do that, one of the things that, that I know from being a psychologist is that it is actually impossible to be mentally calm and physically anxious at the same time, or physically calm and mentally anxious at the same time. It's easier for us to control um, our physical side than it is to control our mental side. So I do what I would normally do in a situation like that, breathe deeply, pay more attention to my heart rate, try and calm it down a little bit. Um, and the breathing is the, the crucial element of that. So I just got up to the crux, breathe through it, and then within an instant, I'm in the other side of this one move crux. And then the game in my head becomes, well, obviously I could do it. There's no reason why I should have paid attention to that fear. And I talk myself through the, the rest of the climb thinking in that way. And that's a, it's a really interesting game we play with ourselves sometimes around that. I, I, think, I think I did the right thing by not paying attention, by not giving into it, by not saying I, I shouldn't be doing this. Um, I was I was thinking about the consequences of oh if you if you don't do this this time then what are you not going to do next time? Most importantly, I I truly knew that I was fully capable of of doing this thing, and just needed to kind of um, talk myself through the the fear that I was experiencing at that point, and perhaps thinking about you know is this true fear or is it just a a bit of an agitation I'm feeling or is it just a bit of a warning to be more cautious do it more methodically, slow down a little bit, but you're fine through this. And I, I'd like to convince myself that I made the right choice in that moment. 
So you, you had a bit of a discussion with your personal therapist <laughs> as you were, as you're moving through it there. Yeah. Yeah. He's very expensive. <laughs> well, that was well told because I got sweaty palms just listening to you there. So <laughs> Jeff, can you think of a time when you used your fear to your advantage? Um, so I think that I hope you can cut this in, but I, I, I think that the experience that I just told you about, I, I think that's very much using fear to an advantage. It just to, to recognize that it's nothing more than a, a symbol. And it actually, in that moment, activated me to chase down the demon, in a sense. That it, I, I think the, the real advantage comes from walking into the fire and then successfully walking back out of it again. And, and I have loved those moments in my life where I face those fears and do it anyways and succeed because of it, despite of it, um, and come out the other side knowing that, okay, I can do this thing. And one of the things that I've, I've often wondered about and had lots of conversations with other folks um, who do the same kinds of outdoor things as I do is how contagious is that for the rest of your life? So if you can do a harder climb than you thought you could do or ski a line that you didn't think that you could do, um, you know, does that translate into the next business meeting I have that I'm going to do a stronger, you know, less fear-filled kind of um, job of doing that? And I, I know in my life, I've been able to translate those outdoor risk-based experiences into other parts of my life where I just think, yeah, yeah, I, I, I can do this. And it's not because I developed any other new skill other than understanding fear better. And it's basically just realizing that that thing that I'm feeling right now isn't real in and of itself. It's just a, a sign of something. So make sense of that something and you can do things differently. What advice do you have for someone who is leading a person who's uh, become quite paralyzed by their fear? Um, so again, I, I think I think the distinction between those various states of arousal um, that I mentioned earlier is is actually quite important. That um, as a leader of people, you need to understand a how that person is different from you and to accept that difference. So if that person um, is very afraid in a situation where you simply are nothing but comfortable, um, honor that, that person's feelings and, and understand that they're coming from a place that feels pretty darn genuine to them and that you're the alien in that experience, not them. So learn how to talk about fear, learn how to help other people make the distinction between what it is that they're feeling and the real danger that they may or may not be facing. So learn how to talk them through that. And then um, equally importantly is, is learn a language of the body really well as a, as a practitioner out there so that you can help people with very specific tools, particularly around helping them breathe differently, that allow them to physically calm down so that they will mentally calm down as a consequence. And demonstrating calmness in that moment, um, you know, a, a rationality, a, a capacity to keep your voice grounded in the way you're talking to somebody else while still honoring the experience that they have is absolutely critical. We're going to let you go here, Jeff. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming today. 
Okay, Jordy, when it comes to controlling our fear and the fear of others, what were your key takeaways from what Jeff had to say? Well, Chris, uh, a, a really nice model that uh, Jeff outlined for us, he, he calls it the BASICS model. That's B-A-S-I-K-S, and for managing fear. So the B is belief that we can actually do this. This requires us to encourage our participants, our clients, to have some kind of faith that they can do this. Um, so that's where we, you know, kind of all become sort of coaches and a cheering squad for, for our people that we're out there with. The A is action. If people are risk averse, it can be better for them to start experiencing things maybe instead of just spending time to talk them through it, right? So get them in, into some sort, sort of form of action um, fairly soon. And that gives them the opportunity to evaluate situations for themselves and actually kind of feel their way through it. The S is for support. So what do you need to do to support them from their point of view? And this requires us to be able to see the situation from their perspective, which can sometimes really be hard for us. Uh, if it's something, a skill or an activity that we're very, very familiar with, it's really hard to, to rewind back to when you were just first starting to learn that skill or, or uh, getting your first experiences. Um, so support them as, as they need it. The I in basics is intention. So people want to, if they want to bother to take risks, they have to see the point in taking that risk. It has to be valuable to them. And, uh, you know, they have to have some sort of, um, you know, intention uh, to actually do this and reasoning for doing that. The K and S is knowledge and skills in basics. And this is giving people the knowledge and giving them the tools, the skills, so they have control and understanding of what they're doing in that activity, which at the very beginning is going to be pretty new to them. I thought it was an excellent summation uh, of what needs to happen. There was two other points that I'm going to add to this uh, that also stuck out to me. One was the idea of calming down, and I, I really liked what Jeff had to say when it came to the idea that it's impossible to be mentally calm and physically anxious at the same time or physically calm and mentally anxious at the same time. He noted that it's easier to control our physical side than our mental side. And, you know, when he said that, it really brought home to me the value of breathing to calm ourselves down. And this is something that then you see really good coaches uh, do when they're when they're in a situation where the people that they're working with are really stressed is to say, OK, I want you to take a deep breath. And in fact, to, to help my guests often or students, I'll actually get them to look at me and do it with me. The second part that really jumped out with me was that idea that what we think will be good for someone else might not be good for them. And so often when we're uh, dealing with situations where the other person is less skilled and less knowledgeable and maybe less confident, we can come to think that, wow, this experience, you're going to love this when in fact they might, they might not. And so, um, as we've often pointed out now in the podcast, everything has to be about them. And we do have to realize that different people have different levels of risk tolerance. And so controlling their fear, they may not be able to do it in the way that we want them to do it. And they may not be able to appreciate the experience the way we want them to appreciate it. Now let's turn it over to you, the listener. What were your takeaways? What stood out to you? 
You can share your thoughts, stories, or insights with us via our social media feeds or by emailing us. You can find all of our contact information at deliveringadventure.com. Also, before we also before you go, we need your help. To keep this podcast going, please take a moment to share it with your like-minded friends, subscribe, and if you can, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you are listening. The more listeners we can get, the more content we can bring to you.